0: Hey everyone and welcome back. Today I'll be interviewing Robin. Join us as she opens up about the unexpected turn her life took when her husband battled a severe case of COVID-19. She'll share the profound impact it had on both her personal life and career. Through her vulnerability, Robin sheds light on the resilience and strength of nurses in the face of adversity. Let's get started. All right, Robin, welcome to the 911 Nonsense podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I know you've been so excited. Can you go ahead and give me
1: an introduction of yourself? Uh, So I am a registered nurse. I worked the vast majority of my career in emergency services. Um, I started before I was a nurse as a tech in the ER. Really? Um, Well, I should say I should say, I should back that up because I was what's called a nurse extern. So basically you do tech work, but you're because I was in nursing school. And I always laugh because emergency services chose me. What do you mean by that? I was in nursing school and I had this huge idea that I was going to be a NICU nurse. That was my like goal. That was where I was going to go. And I happened to meet randomly. I met um, a woman who's now sort of my mentor, but she was a charge nurse in the ER and she said why don't you come and shadow me for a shift and I shadowed her and in the trauma room there was a situation where she needed an extra set of hands and I was supposed to probably not be touching anybody and doing it. anything and um she was like kind of struggling trying to it was I don't know how graphic I can get, but you can like get graphic. Cool. So you it was hearse. this very large woman who needed a Foley catheter, oh, oh and yes. she needed some hands. She needed <laughs> some help. And so I, I was like, you know what, I could do this. I can get in there and help you, right? So I helped her, helped her hold up a panis, and and in the in the meantime, the then director of the ER walked through, and stops, and we're in. So we're in recess Seven. And he stops and looks in there and he goes, would you like a job? (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Am I interviewing right now? (laughs) Is this my interview? (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, so I got hired there and I worked through nursing school. And then um, the day of my nursing school graduation, again, the then director called me and said, I'd like to offer you a graduate nurse position. And I was like floored because this never happens. Right. You know?
0: It's hard to get into the ER.
1: Yeah. And you had to have lots of experience. And so what he said was, you know, you have to have experience. So I'm going to give you that experience. I'm going to send you through the nurse residency program. You're going to be our first, our first candidate from the ER through the nurse residency program. Um, and that was, it was really cool. I got to work um, some of the inpatient units and get kind of my feet under me, learn how to learn how to read orders, learn how to talk to doctors, learn how to advocate, learn all that stuff. And then after about a year, I went down um, to the ER, then really quickly was moved into the trauma room, um, probably too quickly. <laughs> <laughs> that
0: happens, um, unfortunately, with low staffing, huh?
1: Well, yeah, at that time, though, this, so this you we're talking 12 years ago, we're talking about a time when there were nurses that have been there for 10 15 years when they didn't have as much turnover, when people had all this seniority and there was, I was like looking at these nurses and with, you know, with like goo goo eyes almost, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> well, I want to be, I want to be a badass like they are, you know, I want to yeah. be like tough like them and, and, you know, um, and I had gone through my orientation and, It was like a Friday night, and and again, another sort of just cowboy charge nurse comes up and goes, you're going to have a trauma shift tonight. So I was working, it was like a Friday night trauma shift, and I had not gone through any of the trauma training, so I was like, (laughs) okay, this is what we're going to do, all right. I'm going to put my big girl pants on (laughs) today. I guess this is sink or
0: swim time, and I guess I swam, so. That's good. I think it's funny when charge nurses kind of know who they can push a little bit harder than others, you know?
1: I don't know if they're given that same freedom now. I think there's too many... There's a lot more restrictions. Sure. Now, I think there's more bureaucracy than... There. I mean, we're talking a time when, like, in the middle of the night in the trauma room, we used to blast music. Yeah. Right? Like, we would be like, all right, we gotta crack my shoulders and get this done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's let's move forward. Let's get it done. Um. Yeah. So yeah, so I did that for a long time, for a while, and then um, after uh, after I had my son, I did a position called. It was like a trauma resource nurse, so um, it was like swing shift kind of things, and it was basically I came in during the the. I split the shift with another nurse, so it was me and and it depended on the you know the time frame, but me and another designated nurse we swit, we split 6 days a week oh, wow. um, on these high intensity shifts so it was either like 3 in the afternoon till 3 in the morning or 11 in the morning until 11 at night mm-hmm. just these high chaos shifts and we would come in and they would kind of just throw us wherever was blowing up so sometimes a lot of times it was trauma a lot of times it was triage sometimes it was floor shift kind of stuff. Sometimes it was relief charge kind of stuff. Sometimes it was mech kind of stuff. Sometimes it was doing the, like, bed management kind of stuff. It just depended. I mean, I did that for a while, and then I felt really burnt. I got really burnt out. What's a while before you got burnt? What would you say? Oh, I was burnt for a long time. Before I recognized the burnout. Sure. Okay. was probably too long. was probably about like uh, over two years. Okay. That's hard. It, high intensity for two years is hard
0: and the burnout. And then, like you said, recognizing that burnout. Sometimes by the time you recognize it, you've already been burned out for a long time. And so what did you do when you got a little burned out? So then
1: I went to pediatrics. Okay. <laughs> so then I just decided to hop across the, uh, the hallway and go to pediatrics because I thought, well, you know what? I can marry being a nurse and being a mom at the same time, right? And I can like, this will be great. I can use my expertise. And when I it was, it was great. It was a great move. It like re-energized me. Um, it gave me a new love. And then when the burnout from PEDS hit, it was, I was like, I'm done. Yeah,
0: that's going to be hard. Like, how do you, I mean, working with adults is hard, right? There's a lot of adult choices that are made that make you question life in general. Mm -hmm. But how did you separate your compassion fatigue, right, from taking care of the kids in
1: pediatric ER and then going home and taking care of your own kids? (laughs) Not well. Oh, okay. (laughs) Not well. Um, The first thing, though, was I had this fantastic mentor who told me when I came over from the adult side to pediatrics, she told me when when bad things are happening to the kids, just remember that you can be the one person that gives them a hug. You can be the one person that talks nice to them and says something nice to them and creates a nice situation for them. Maybe the only person in their whole life that's given them that, um, somebody that cares about them. And you get to be that. And I've held on to that statement for since the time she said it, I was, it was like a light bulb moment for me. And I was like, huh, yep. Okay. I'm going to be that person. So when they come in beaten to heck, I get to be the person that hugs them and tells them that they're beautiful or tells them that they're wonderful and tells them that it's not their fault and tells them that, um, it's going to be okay. And we're going to keep them safe and we're going to help them. And You know, I get to be the one that explains things and doesn't demand stuff of them, even though, unfortunately, we do. But, you know, it's that I get to control myself a little bit in that way. But in terms of taking it home, I don't think you ever get to stop taking it home. Um, And what I found myself doing at the end of my time in pediatrics, what I found myself doing was I would go home and I would try to not really tell anybody anything right we, ca- we can't say like specific identifiers right but like you have to let some of the stuff out right like oh man I saw this funny thing today or, I saw this cool thing today or, I saw this really crazy thing today right and so you have to let some of it out without giving out identifiers you know but then I learned that like my trauma was like transferring to other people yeah you know so then that's a hard thing too so then it's like okay well I'll bottle it up and then I won't say anything but then it comes out So like then I was like snapping at my kids and I'm like getting, you know, I'm exhausted. Even though I've slept a whole night, like I'm just, it's just that emotional fatigue. It's that emotional exhaustion, you know? Yeah. And And it's hard
0: to explain that to lay people because it's, yeah, you did just sleep 12 hours, you know, or eight hours or however much sleep that you need, but you still wake up and you're like, I got to do this again. I got to do this for another three shifts. I got to do this for another five shifts, 12 hour shifts. And yeah, I get off on time every day, but I still take all that home. I still carry that burden. And even if you didn't have a bad day, right, you had fairly easy patients all day. You still, all of that emotion is so built up, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, I wish, I wish there was a better way for us to educate
1: people in that way, but I don't know how to do it. I don't know. I know, too, that I started getting to a point where I was like, oh, I don't want to go to work tomorrow. You know, like I knew that it was like my last day of time off, and I'm like, oh. and then I started saying that out loud. And then I heard that like mimicking back from my kids. You know, like, oh, you have to go to work tomorrow. Are you mad? Are you so? You know, oh, yeah. and like my spouse was like, "What? If, if you don't want to go, why don't you just call in? You know, I was like, well... <laughs> I can't call in because I just don't want to go like yeah <laughs> you know and so we got to this point um and then we had I had some personal tragedy stuff that happened and it really just my husband had severe COVID and he was hospitalized he was intubated was, he was that right after like in the first wave or it was he got the Omicron variant so oh, it was right around um right around Christmas time not this past Christmas but the Christmas before and you know it was just that whole experience and seeing it from the side of a patient and a patient's spouse as opposed to being the one taking care of people I, it just changed my whole mindset and I was like I I fell out of love with the hospital I fell out of love with ER
0: as f- as a Patient. As, a, like, as, as a, a
1: provider, f- yes. as a patient, as a person. Like I saw it from a whole new perspective. And I was like, I don't, I got to find something different. I was so far beyond burnt out. And I what I recognized was, I'm, I, I can't do this anymore. I started getting like, I would triage people and I'd be like, why are you here? Why did you bring your kid in for a fever that they've had for three minutes? Yeah. Really? You know, and then I was like, okay, well, that's not the way I should be acting, you know? Yeah. And then, and then again, it fell in my lap. So then I changed, I changed trajectories completely and I'm working in a school setting now. And I still get to do emergency stuff. I still get to use all my, I get to use some stuff that I was never trained in, like splinting.
0: Oh, that I, is cool. Yeah.
1: Like splinting bones and stuff. And I'm like, huh. Well, that's all right then.
0: Yeah, I got this. <laughs> <laughs> huh. All right. That's cool sp- when you I'm get I'm split without skills. a sand. split. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Where's my tech? <laughs>
1: yeah. And it's just me. And yeah. so then you go back to like the cowboy days of like, it's just me. I'm yeah. the only one that has any medical expertise. I have a health assistant, but. Like, she's not, doesn't have a medical background, Mm -hmm. you know? So, but it's cool. I get to teach. And the thing that I realized was I wanted to shift from a reactive place, right? I'm reacting to either a person's bad choice or somebody else's bad choice that they made for this child or, like, the just shit circumstances that these kids deal with, you know? And that brings them to this place of, like, chaos and drama, but I get to see them on a daily basis and forge a relationship with them and teach them things, how to, how to help yourself, right? How to, how to keep yourself healthy, how to keep yourself safe, how to, you know, like what constitutes an emergency and what doesn't, right? you know? And, and so for me, it's more of a proactive place. And then it's again, re-energized my like, oh my God, I love this. I so love
0: this. How do you take care of yourself
1: at home? mm I went through therapy for a long time. I went through therapy mostly for childhood trauma stuff mm-hmm. that I was getting over. A
0: lot of people have talked about how they had to deal with childhood childhood trauma and then ended up in EMS. So that is uh, that's been a common factor that I've seen between a lot
1: of people. Statistically, I think those of us in like helping professions, we statistically are people who experienced some kind of childhood trauma and wanted to help and and wanted to help or wanted to like um I don't know wanted to like replay that chaos and that drama and that like it just feels natural and normal to us Mm -hmm. kind of living in that chaos Mm -hmm. and I think over the years, like all the all the ER nurses that I've ever talked to have all said, Yeah, I had some kind of something in my life. Now I'm not saying every single one did, but just the ones I've talked to.
0: Well, and it's hard to say, right? Like something that was traumatizing to me might not be traumatizing to you, right? So it's hard to to gauge that level because everybody's traumatized these days. Yep. And I don't mean it in a bad way, that just It is what it is. Everybody is
1: traumatized these days. Mm -hmm. So I did that for a long time. And then, you know, after after my husband recovered, after I knew that I wanted to move on from emergency services, it took me a little bit to kind of put together what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. I had been thinking about it for a while, but like um, it took me a little bit to kind of piece it all together and make a big jump and a change, you know. But in the midst of all that, I found exercise. And so I was like, well, I could go back to therapy, right? And I can talk about all these things. But my experience with therapy was, what are they, like, they going to say to me? They're going to say, okay, you're having PTSD because of all this stuff that you've been through, the, all the, the things that you experience on a daily basis. So let's remove you from that. And I was like, oh, okay, so I should remove myself from it. That's what they're going to tell me to do. So I'll just do it, right? And then I was like, what I found was um, doing like, and I'm not like a weird exercise junkie, you know, but like just like 20 or 30 minutes a day of like getting my like adrenaline going. And like, it just helps me work it all out. And I can just kind of like... Having a schedule. Yeah. And just, you know, and then being removed from this place of like, did you know like in the ER, it's like, it's everybody's worst day. Yeah. Every patient's worst. And I'm sure it's the same on the rig too. Mm-hmm. Is everybody's having the worst day of their life. They're, they're sick and they feel terrible and they're lashing out or their loved one is injured and they're scared and it's their worst day of their life. And what I realized was like taking myself out of that place, I'm like, it's not always everybody's worst day of their life all the time. Like, it's not this drama filled right, life. That,
0: right. I, and I have to say, for a lot of years, I hated going and like eating out at restaurants because I was afraid who's going to choke. Mm-hmm. Now I have to keep an eye on everybody in the restaurant to make sure nobody's choking because if I miss that and I don't save them, I'm a bad person. Or, and my wife will tell you if I see a car accident and I don't see anybody else that has stopped, I will stop.
1: Thank you. And yes. it's,
0: it. <laughs> Let me tell you about the last one I stopped at. So I was getting off shift at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I was driving home, and it had rained really heavily. And um, I was on the freeway, and there were two cars in front of me, and there was a huge puddle in the freeway. Well, both of the cars were at the same level, and one was a truck and one was a small car, and the truck hit the puddle and, of course, blew water all over the little car, which caused the, the young lady that was driving the little car to swerve hit the cement barrier and flip her car. The truck kept going and I was like, okay babe, I'm gonna hang up with you really quick. I gotta call the, gotta call 911 and I gotta go check on this, this driver. So I park and it's two o'clock in the morning so there's not that much traffic. Um, and I walk up to this driver who's sitting in her car, freaking out with her seatbelt on, upside down. And I'm like, hey ma'am, are you okay? And she's like, you made me crash. You made me crash. It's your fault. You made me crash. I'm like, you're going to stay in your seatbelt. I'm calling 911 for you. Are you okay? It's this is your fault. It's your fault. I'm like, I saw it happen. It I wasn't the one driving next to you. Yeah. Please calm down. You know, she didn't have any injuries. Her airbags didn't even go off. Like she was fine. She was just young and upset which is understandable but i had to step away because i was like i cannot handle this little girl yelling at me (laughs) that it's my fault that she just crashed her car you know what i mean and it's it just makes you really take a step back and it is you know i constantly have an eye out for that stuff even now i'm not in the 911 system i still I, re- I do recognize that it's not everybody's emergency every second of every day, but I'm constantly looking,
1: you know, 100%. I feel that totally like we'll take the kids to the zoo or something. And I'm like, where are you? Where are you? Okay, you're not Yep, yeah, You need to be in front of me. So I can say you cannot be behind me. I can't like I can't see you. I can't somebody's gonna come up and snatch you. Yeah. It's You know, it's I'm like, not
0: I don't have kids. But I love those little monkey backpacks with <laughs>
1: with the leashes on I them. I totally have one. I love those things. I totally have one. We took my, my son when he was two, we took him to Disneyland and we got him a little Mickey Mouse backpack because I was like, I'm not going to lose him at Disneyland. Yeah. I was so terrified, you know, and I was like, he was in the stroller and this is PTSD, which I recognize now, but it, like he's in the stroller with the Mickey Mouse backpack on Buckled into the stroller. And I have the leash in <laughs>
0: Because <laughs> <I'm laughs> double-checking yourself so he doesn't leap. <laughs> so nobody
1: snatches him. Or so yeah. that, like, you know, no, he doesn't, legit. like, jump out and crack his head open, yeah. you know? Oh, it's so silly. But, like, even, yeah, eating out. I, I'm i not... You go eat out and you're like, oh, what's happening here? Yeah. You know? <laughs> or even, like... Even more recently, because of everything that, like, all the other nationwide issues, right? Like, the the mass shooting stuff, right? And you're like, I don't really want to go to the movies anymore. Right.
0: I don't want to go to any major events. like
1: I don't really want to go to concerts anymore. Yeah, really. I know. My wife's
0: like, let's go to the the market up the street. And I'm like, there's a lot of people there. There's a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know know about that. I don't know if I feel
1: up to that. (laughs) Can we just stay home and, like...
0: Play a video game, babe. It's okay. Maybe.
1: We'll just, we'll just order some Uber <laughs> Eats. It'll be fine. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, it's, it's so scary. It's so scary, the things that are happening. Even my mom, the other day, she was like, I'm really, I'm kind of glad I don't have grandchildren at this point, because it's like, the world is such a scary place right now.
1: It's scary. And it, in the school setting now, we're like, you know, it's like, in a different way, you're sort of like, here I am sitting there thinking, okay. We're at sort of a remote school as compared to other schools. Mm-hmm. So, like, all right, so if something happens, my kid is here, but there's 360 other kids mm-hmm. as well, too, plus 20-some-odd staff members. And I'm the only medical person here, right? What's that going to look like? Yeah. You know?
0: Do you suggest any type of training?
1: We. You're required to have at least a bachelor's degree.
0: but do you, but, do you, oh. do you request any type of special training at the school? like oh, for mean, okay. exit strategies and
1: we're given training okay like the the public school um, system that I work with, they provide lots of training to us and they're they're pretty good about you know safety measures, putting up um, the school I work with, it, the school I work at is like an open kind of campus. Mm-hmm. So we have separate buildings um, and you have to walk outdoors to get to the separate buildings and sure. stuff, but they have fencing that goes around the perimeter that's locked and, you know, they have, there's only one door that remains unlocked and that's, you know, the administrative door. Everything else is, you know. So like they, a limited egress. hmm And, you know, I was impressed because the police department that's sort of close to where we are um they came out not long ago and said you know they did like a whole walk through they wanted to know the lay of the land and kind of understand what was happening and where So they're being proactive they're being proactive that's great it's great i
0: think it's easier in your situation where you're in kind of a smaller area i wonder if the local cops here do the same thing for the public schools when they're you know, again, everybody's
1: short-staffed, and it makes it hard. Yeah. But it's hard, too, to think about, like, some of those recent school things that have happened and, like, how people didn't respond how they were supposed to or so could like have. Like, is, is that
0: what yeah. we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah,
1: like, like that, where they just didn't respond accordingly. Yeah, I've or had wh- some
0: pretty hard debates on that one. That's hard because... Cops don't get paid a whole lot of money and they're already told to put their lives on the line, you know, and they, that you have an active shooter and you have kids. Oh, that one's a hard one. It's a hard one. It's a hard one.
1: And like, what would I do in that situation? Would I be that mom who like busted in a window and jumped inside and grabbed kids? Would you You be rushing in or would you be standing on the sideline? Right. And that's, hopefully i never have to answer that question, but it's something that I think about, you know. And that in my, like, my school health office setting where I'm like, okay, how would I respond to this? Where would I go? What would I do? You know, and what would happen too if I was on lockdown over here and I had one of my medically complex kids that I'm providing care for every day way over here, what am I going to do? How am I going to get to them? And what if they need me? And what if, you know, or what if one of my you know, asthmatics starts having a reaction and I can't get to them and their med is here with me and I can't get over the, you know, so there's all those kind of logistic things. A lot to think about and a lot to
0: plan out. Awesome. So you talked a little bit about um, your husband having a severe COVID experience. Do you want to, do you want to explain that a little
1: bit? Yeah. So um, it was, it was hard because I got sick first. I got COVID first. I got COVID from the hospital I was working at. Was homesick, passed it to my children, and he was still working where he works and what he does. He was fairly removed. He was like removed from everybody else, and he wasn't really interacting with me and the kids. So, it was he wasn't sick at all. And then, just as I was starting to like feel better, um, he started feeling sick. And so I remember it pretty specifically because he came home after work on a Friday and was like, I feel terrible. And I'm like, oh, crap.
0: Yeah. Ah, We know what this is. 99% (laughs) sure. know what's happening. Yeah.
1: And he had, you know, all the kind of classic, although he had different symptoms than me. So like he had fevers and he started having a really sore throat and he was like, um, then he started vomiting like crazy so he spent several days of like this he couldn't really swallow because his throat was hurting so much and then he was vomiting up a whole bunch so then so he's like losing water both ways you know and he's eating ibuprofen like it's going out of style and so I watched this for days right and I'm like you have to drink stuff I'm like whatever I can get you to drink, whatever I can, you know, I don't even care. Just drink something, eat something, do something, you know. And he he just couldn't and he wouldn't. And then he wasn't sleeping. So then he was like up at night because he was restless and couldn't breathe very well. And then he would just be sitting on the couch and like pass out for 20 minutes and then wake up and have no recollection. So this goes oh, on. That's so terrible. This goes on and on, and it goes on for 10 days. We're at day 10, and by this point, it's Christmas Day. And so here I am, like, I'm recovering from COVID. The kids are recovering from COVID. They're, like, wound up and going crazy. And it's Christmas Day, and he feels like absolute shit. And he is, like, gray and, like, hanging out on the couch could not stay awake we could eat like kids go to open presents and he's like passed out on the ground you know what i mean like he couldn't he just couldn't he he just wasn't himself poor guy and he started peeing kind of this brown color which you and i know is like oh crap his kidneys yeah you know so i'm like all right we need to get you to the hospital you need to see a doctor this is beyond what i can help you with and what i can do for you so Christmas afternoon, pack up the kids, pack him up, take him down to the hospital I work at, to the ER. And this is a time when you can't go in with anybody, right? Yeah. So he goes inside. They And I am like, cool, they're going to keep him for a while. They're going to run tests on him, right? He's like coughing up brown, mucusy stuff, you know? And I'm like, guarantee you have pneumonia at this point, like... They're going to keep you for a while. Maybe they'll give you some fluids. Like, maybe at the very minimum, they're going to do a chest x ray. They're going to like help you out, right? And he's breathing, what I clocked him was breathing about 30 times a minute at that point. So I knew he was already tachypnic. He's already, you know, he's already kind of meeting those sepsis criteria. Right. And I thought, well, you know, they'll help you out. Maybe they'll give you some steroids. Maybe we'll do something, right? So I drop him and I leave. And I drive 30, 40 minutes back home. My wife would die.
0: <laughs> if I left her, she would have died. But I
1: couldn't, I had I no other choice you, And
0: you had your kids. And That's I had my kids. So hard. And we're
1: recovering from COVID, right? Yeah. So and he's got COVID. So I can't be around any other family members. I have family members who have other lung problems. At the time, one of them had was in chemotherapy. Like, you know, I can't be around anybody else. So it's me and the kids. So we drop them up. I call some friends of mine in the pediatric ER, and I said, hey, I'm dropping off my husband. Like, you know, can you just keep an eye on him? Just watch his name on the board and, you know, if whatever, because I can't be there. No sooner do I get back up on the mountain, 30, 35-minute drive, and a friend of mine calls me and says, dude, you're never going to believe this. They're discharging him. And I said, what? excuse me? And she goes, I just went back there and saw him. He was in decon. And she goes, he looks like shit, but they're discharging him. And I was like, do what? And then he calls me and he goes, can you come back and pick me up? They're discharging me. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, did Give me on the phone with the doctor. Yeah, give me on the phone with the doctor. Like, let me talk to him. Maybe they don't realize, like, maybe they don't realize who you are and who I am. And, like, maybe they haven't put this together to know that, like, I'm not going to bring you in if you're not actually sick. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he's, like, pissed. He's like, no, just come and pick me up. I'm just done. They're treating me like shit. I can't breathe. And they won't. Listen to me and they won't fucking do anything I'm asking. And you know, he's like, I'm just sitting here in a wheelchair puking into a bucket and nobody cares. And I'm all alone in decon. And like, he was like, He's like, I don't even know where the damn bathroom is. You know, like, no, they had just left him there by himself in decon. Wow. So yeah. So I'm like, Fine. So I packed the kids back up. I drive back down, call this friend of mine who's in PEDS, and I said, Hey, I'm on my way back down. Can you just check on on him he's in decon he can't get to the bathroom he's he's upset like I know he can't I knew that like walking around our house and our house is not that big you know but he was getting short of breath like walking from the bedroom to the living room you know or like the living room to the kitchen like Like, this was not very easy things yeah just tiring him right he was just exhausted and I'm like can you so she goes and helps him shows him where the bathroom is all this stuff I get back down there and she's like you know, had wheeled him for me because they were going to make him walk from decon all the way back up to the front, which is, you know, what?
0: Like a football field. Yeah, it's like a yeah, football field it's length. It's about a football field length.
1: So, But he's like, can't do it, Yeah, you know? They, and why so were she, they going to
0: make him walk? Is it not a hospital rule to wheel them to the door? It's not an official rule.
1: I've walked people out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've <laughs> walked people out, but he uh-huh. always... Uh, Say listen. that we rolled him. Yeah, or like, you know, if they're like, do I have to be wheeled? No, you don't have to, but I'm going to walk with you. Right. You know, mm-hmm. they weren't going to do that for him. So she wheeled him out and he, and he, like, he's got the pink bucket, you know, and gets in the car and kind of chucks it up on the dash and he's like, this is, you know, fuck this and yeah, I'm pissed mad, and, you yeah. know. Really? Like, he's like, I just want to stop vomiting. He could not stop vomiting, you know? And he's like, I just want to stop vomiting. And he's like, then I said, well, did they give you any prescriptions? And he's like, I don't know. You know? And so I look through the paperwork and I'm like, well, I don't see anything in here about prescriptions. Let me just run back into triage really quick, you know? So I run into triage and I'm like, did you guys not give him prescriptions? Like, can you just give him some Zofran or something, you know? Like something
0: to help him out, make yeah. him feel more comfortable at least. anything. Yeah.
1: You know? We're not they asking had, for narcotics here. They had literally, he hadn't seen a doctor. He never saw a physician. Nobody had ever listened to his lungs. Do you think they that, had written, that may have
0: been because it was COVID and nobody wanted? Probably. To take part of that because they didn't want to spread it on, right? Like... Not Probably. I'm not giving them excuses. I'm just, do you think that that was the thought at that point? Like, this dude's sick. He has COVID. There's not much we can do for him here.
1: Get him on his way. Probably. But what happened subsequent to that was they didn't ever give him prescriptions. They kept telling us, oh, we, we called him into this pharmacy. We call I called her on to every single... Walgreens pharmacy, wow. known to man. And there were, I'm like, this is not, it's Come not on, that guys. hard to give, to give somebody, like hand them an ODT Zofran and tell them to put it under their tongue. Yeah. Like if you don't want, you know, if you yeah. don't want to touch them and you don't want to be there when they have their mask down and stuff. But also as somebody who worked in that setting, right, I was working in the PZR where we were the hub of swabbing because nobody else was swabbing children. Yeah. So we were swabbing all the kids. I was doing it. Swabbed everybody. Yeah, I was doing it. I was. We were having those swabbing parties. You know, like (laughs) bring 'em on (laughs) down. Like we were tagged. We would two two nurses. One of them would like write down your vitals, and the other one is sticking up the nose and swab. You know, whatever. So I get it, but I also, on the other hand, was there and was like, I I understand that. Like by that point, we had all the PPE we needed. By that point, treating like a human, right? Yeah. So anyway, so we get home, and I um, called in a favor to some dear friends in the EMS community. Because I have a few. Not unheard of. (laughs) Long story short, I got some supplies dropped off at my front door. Um, I started an IV, and I gave him a couple of liters. Because he was, like I said, peeing brown. Um, And he perked up. You know, he doesn't remember that at all. He passed out completely. Um, He perked up. The next day, he was feeling great. We, like, even went came into town trying to find his prescriptions. Life was good. Um, he was still breathing really fast and had no energy and couldn't really sleep. But, you know, I was like, okay, we're, we're turning a corner here. There's definitely an like, improvement. Yeah, like, we're, yeah. we're doing something, right? And then the following day... Um, he he owns a business. So he was like had been shut down the whole time he had been sick, sure. right? And it's like the end of the year stuff and owning a business. And so he was like, All right, New Year's is coming up. I gotta get in and get some paperwork done. So he like go goes to his shop and it's doing paperwork or something. Jesus. He drove himself Poor guy. He drove himself in, does he doesn't remember any of that. Wow. He remembers going to the shop and being at the shop. He has no idea how he got home what i know is when he came in the house he was angry he was hypoxic angry i, I oh. recognize that now right so he he wasn't getting enough oxygen yes yeah yeah he was just and we see we see this in children too like yeah. they do the same thing when they're hypoxic they have that air hunger just fight yeah. in them and he was just snappy and he was doing that like um he was doing that panting breathing yeah thing Right. Tripoding almost, tripoding. He was. He had this like tremor and a shake in his leg that he couldn't stop. You know. Yeah. Which again, looking back on it now, I'm like, oh, that was all the hypoxia stuff. Yeah. At the at that particular moment, I didn't put it all together. Because exactly. you're not in work mode, right? Yeah. I'm in I'm in wife and home mode, yeah. right? Where I'm like, you know what? We're gonna be okay. We're gonna get through this. Like you're gonna get better. You know, it's gonna be okay. Well, he goes to bed that night, all is fine, but he's still doing that funky breathing thing. And I didn't sleep very well because I'm like every little bit waking up, kind of like looking at him breathing and stuff. Very next morning, my kids have dental appointments, right? So I'm like, okay, well, I got to take the kids to the dentist. And this is what I said to him because I had to go back to work like the following day. Mm -hmm. And I said, how exactly are you going to take care of these kids while I'm at work? If you can't even hardly take care of yourself, you know, I said, I'm taking you back to the hospital. And he was like, no, I refuse. They're just going to turn me away again. They're just going to treat me like crap again. I'm not going back. And I so I finally convinced him to go to the urgent care. Fine, I'll go to the urgent care, yeah. right? I said, I know what's going to happen. You're going to go to the urgent care. They're going to take one look at you and ship you onto the ER. But at least I can get you in through the door of the hospital, right? Yeah. So he goes, okay, let me go, let me go. Like, take a bath and get ready. And he's still doing that panting breathing thing and speaking in short sentences. So he goes into the bathtub and is trying to calm his breathing down, trying to clean himself up, trying to, like, and he's passing out in the bathtub. Oh, wow. He cannot stay awake in the bathtub.
0: Like he's falling asleep or he's just straight passing out? Straight passing out.
1: Oh, that's scary. I sternal rubbed him. Oof. So I looked at him and I said, you know what? You fucking divorce me. I'm calling nine one one. You You divorce me later. We're on the line here. Yeah, this is the end. I'm calling nine one one. I'm done. I've had enough. I'm done. And I threw up my hands, and I walked out, and I called nine one one. And I'm on the phone with the dispatcher, and I'm telling her all this stuff, and she says, "I need you to stand in the bathroom with him so that you can tell me if he stops breathing." And I'm like, "Well, we're, we're not there. I mean, we're not." Again, hindsight, I understand, right? But like at the moment, I'm like, we're not there. He's good. It's fine. Yeah. So I get my kids and my dogs like ushered into this bedroom and I like tell my kid, don't open the door. No matter what you hear, don't open this door for anything, right? I I will come and open the door because that last thing I wanted was them all bum rushing when they got there. stressing out. Yeah. So fire shows up first.
0: Did you at least put your husband's clothes on? Yeah.
1: Oh, okay, ha- that's nice. Yeah. I
0: always think about, like, what if something happens to yeah. my wife and she's in the bathtub or I'm in the bathtub? Yeah. I'm like, are you going to at least put my clothes on yeah. before they get here? I got okay. him
1: out of the water. You have my utmost respect. <laughs> I got him out of the water put on boxers. Okay. And pajama pants, I think, is what he had on. He didn't have on a shirt. Um, but he's sitting kind of on the side of the bathtub We have this like little ledge on the side. So he's sitting on the side. So fire goes into the bathroom and they're like, they kind of like saunter. You know how fire does, right? Yeah, they saunter I love firefighters, but they kind of just walk in. Yeah. You know? It's it's not a big deal. I'm here. Don't worry. Yeah. And there's, I think, two of them to start with. And they walk in and they're kind of like, where is he? And I show them. And they're like, oh. Oh! Oh! Okay! Oh! Oh! Shit! <laughs> like, okay. One of them kind of like <laughs> kneels down and puts on the O two probe, and he doesn't even register. Mm. And the lieutenant's mm. like, um, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna call for some backup." And I was like, "Why?" <laughs> You're just in this mom mode still, in this well, home just mode and I hadn't and... seen it. Yeah, I hadn't seen the number because I was kind of behind. And he goes, well, because, you know, I can't pick up his oxygen level, and that means it's less than 50%. And I was like, oh, okay. And then he puts on the um, CO2 monitor, and he's 15%. He was 15? 15. 15. And the normal is 35
0: to 45, so
1: 15. Is nasty. Yeah, it means he's blowing off way mm-hmm. too much. His heart rate was 165. Oh, goodness. Oh. Mm-hmm. And he Ooh. was breathing 65 times a minute. So they get some help. They get them onto a gurney. They get them on, you know, non-rebreather. The, so the 15 liters of oxygen, they get, get them get ready to go. And then in comes the, uh, the transport uh, the ambulance. ambulance uh-huh. Yes. So the fire department's not going to transport, right? It's the, it's the, the paramedics that yeah. are going to transport. And they walk in and I know them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Usually that's the case. Uh-huh. Huh? Yep. Fabulous guys. Fabulous guys who I have seen and thanked and given updates to. And they just look at me and I look at them and I just was like, "Uh, uh, I have no idea what's happening. And they're like, it's okay. It's okay. Like, we're going to start an IV. We're going to get him some meds. We're going to get him taken care of. We're going to take him to the hospital. And then they take off and they leave. And then I'm like sitting there going, (laughs) What the hell just happened? And what do I do? And what do I do? And where do I go? And what? I don't know. I can't go to the hospital because they're not allowing visitors. Yeah. I have no idea what to do. So I take my kids to the dentist. <laughs> okay. I. <I'm, laughs> you do. I think what any listen, person listen, would do. But this is this is this is the PTSD thing, right? This is the compartmentalizing thing that we in emergency services do. Yeah. I had just compartmentalized this whole situation that had just happened and was like i'm gonna go back into mom mode yeah this is fine it's good so i call my mother-in-law and i tell her what's going you know the whole family's freaking out right and i'm on my way you know to take my kids and uh i get a call from that medic and he kind of updates me on what had happened and the whole ride down, you know, they're trying different modalities, trying different things to help him out, and they couldn't get his oxygen up. Like, I think they had gotten it up to, like, 74%, 75% was mm-hmm. the max they could get it up to, you know. And he's like, we're, we're here. We're in the trauma room now. Like, you know, he's with the doctors. Um, they're trying. They had tried everything. They had tried, like, BiPAP. They had tried CPAP. They had tried, you know, but he couldn't tolerate any of these big masks on his face—they're so trying this all stuff. the non-invasive mm-hmm. moves first. And the whole thing, and he goes, "You're going to get a call from the doc pretty soon, probably, but I want you to know that he's here, and you know all this stuff, right?" And then I did—I got a call from from the resident, who again I know, right? I've worked with him, I've trained him, I've you know, because oh. that's part of a teaching hospital, right? We, as the like long-time nurses, there train the doctors, right? Yeah. And so he calls and and. He's like, you know, I want your permission to intubate him because that's, you know, I can't get him above 80%. No matter what I do, no matter what position I have him in, you know, we're giving him steroids and we're giving him, you know, all these different meds. And he's like, he has pneumonia. We don't know that for sure at this point. Thank you. I told you that days ago. What did I know? It's fine. It's fine. Um, But, and then, and then it was this series of, um, doctor after doctor after doctor calling, right? So then I get a call from the attending and the attending is like, yeah, I'm, I'm really very sure that he probably has um, PEs, pulmonary embolism, but he's not stable enough to send him through the CT scanner at this point. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to just keep, you know, keep working it, keep working it and we'll see. And then I get a call from the ICU doctors and they want permission to put in a central line and permission for blood transfusions and permission for art lines and permission, you know, for all so this stuff. he stu- was really, he really was sick. He was really sick. He was very, very sick. Luckily, he wasn't an end organ failure. That's good. So, and what I was told by the ER attending was it was probably the fluids that I gave that saved his kidneys. He had a little bit of kidney damage, but it wasn't where it probably could have been, sure. you know. So then he was taken up to the ICU and then... Um, and then I get a call from the intensivist who, again, had been an ER resident. Oh, perfect. Who I knew. And he was like, when I saw your name come up, I just decided I was going to call you right away um, and not let my residents call and talk to you. I was going to talk to you, talk that's, to you myself. That's awesome. And I was like, oh, that's, that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Thank God. I feel so like,
0: <sighs> okay, you know.
1: I didn't, you know, and so it was a total of, he was intubated for a total of 10 days, and it was a fight. He had, um, not only did he have scattered bilateral PEs. And PEs are blood pulmonary clots, embolism. yeah, blood yeah. clots in the lungs. Yeah, scattered all, all throughout his lungs. Um, he also developed a GI bleed, so he started vomiting blood, gastrointestinal bleed um, later on, and had to be scoped, and they had to cauterized bleeds and stuff and he had to have lots of blood transfusions. I think he had a total of eight or nine units. Uh Mm Uh-huh. They had a heck of a time kind of extubating him, but it was with my push that that happened. I had to threaten a couple of nurses to like that's why we advocate, right? Well that's why
0: we were there to advocate for our family members.
1: Absolutely. Um I was fortunate and I will be forever grateful for the director of that um, ICU that he was on because that director allowed me, despite their rules, allowed me one hour every day to come in in my full PPE garb and to visit him. That's fantastic. I and mean, it's, I, was, I know
0: it's so limited and. In- but I, I, I can only imagine how grateful you were because oh, even that yes. one hour a day is more than nothing. Oh, it was,
1: yeah. It was one hour of just, like, I just got to be there with him and, like, hold his hand. I re- there was this nurse who didn't understand that I was his wife, I don't think. And at one point, like, I don't know what she was thinking exactly, really. But, like, she stood there and argued with me about the fact that I had to wear gloves and I was like, no, this is my husband. I'm going to hold his hand. Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, you, you have to wear gloves, see, because we can't go into contact rooms without gloves on. And I said, but again, you understand that I've washed before coming in and washed before leaving and washed after leaving. I'd like to hold my husband's hand. Thank you very yeah. much. Like. It was just you know it's like it's little things when you're in those intensive moments mm-hmm. so finally he gets extubated and gets kind of downgraded and he's out out of the icu he's been out of the icu for like oh, 12 hours something like that and he starts complaining of pain in his stomach and i'm like oh my god you know we've gone through the gi bleeds and stuff and i'm like oh my god he's like perforated you know i'm like running through all this And I was like, do you think you guys could do a CT scan of his belly and just make sure he hasn't perforated anything? And so they they do. And then they find out he has um, developed empyema, which is the infection around the outside of the lung lining. Um, And so it's collapsing his right lung with pus and fluid. And then he winds up getting chest tubes, uh, two of them, in fact. Um, and then winds up back in the ICU on like high flow oxygen, and the whole night. In total, he spent three days shy of a month in the hospital. Wow. However, he persevered. He lost fifty pounds.
0: Holy cow!
1: Uh-huh. And he's not a big guy. Yeah. Like he was, you know, two hundred pounds. And he, lost, he came out looking like, you know, uh, skin and bones. A drug addict or something um, yeah, similar. <laughs> survivor of the Holocaust yeah. or something. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. Oh, man. It was crazy. Um, but he he came out uh, very weak, um, but we got to go home and he had home health care kind of stuff, did PTOT at home, um, didn't have to come home on oxygen. Oh, wow. He was able to wean himself down and move around and... Um, we had fantastic specialists, I, I cannot credit enough to the pulmonologists that took care of him. They were phenomenal. That's the, fantastic. Yeah. They did these um, infusions, they're called lytic infusions. He wasn't stable enough to do um, what they call a vat surgery to like open up his chest and scrape out the infection mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, he wasn't stable enough for that, so they did something called um, lytic infusion. So they infuse in um, the medication to kind of bust up the the scar tissue and the infection and all that kind of stuff and flush it out. Super, super painful, um, but he powered through it, and That's they crazy. did like seven of those infusions, and they worked. They worked beautifully. That's awesome. It was it was kind of it was crazy being on the other side of it, watching you know when they put in. Um, One of the chest tubes that they put in, again, another resident that we had, that I had worked with, was um, the intensivist who put it in. Wow. um, Who had also battled like a long COVID stent himself, and so talked to me from that perspective of things. And but through all of that, you know, I just was like, I can't, I can't see the hospital in the same way anymore. Yeah, it changed changed yeah. your perspective. Yeah, yeah, and the 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 fights I had, and I won't go into all that. But the advocating, you know, at one point I, at one, at one point he needed a treatment that the nurses either didn't want to do or they were, they kept pushing it off. He he needed he needed like an enema. He needed like he needed to poop. Yeah, you know it yeah. is just what it is he was, an he, was yeah, he was yeah he was in a bed and he needed to poop and i knew he needed to poop and i'm like just put in the suppository just like let's be done with this game yeah. you know and at one point <laughs> one night i was like i had called and it was like nine o'clock at night or something and i had called to find out and i was like so have you given him the suppository because i had been told for days and days oh we're going to give it on the next shift and on the next shift and this nurse was like, well, I um, don't think he really needs it. And um, if he doesn't poop by morning, then I'll have the day shift do it. And I, I just was like, you know what? Here's the deal. You're going to do it. And, and if you don't want to clean him up, I will call some friends of mine from the emergency room to come up and clean him up. If that's, or I will come down yeah. there myself and clean him up. Yep. Next thing I know, she gave it. Oh, that's good. I called her on her, you know. Yeah. No, we <laughs> some- had
0: a, I just had a very similar... Sometimes similar incidents with our stay in the hospital as well. Like, Yeah. That's I, That's part of your job. Yep. Being an adult. Yep. Touch somebody's it's butt. Okay. It's fine. It's all Man, good. It's just a butt.
1: Yeah. But when it's I, you poop. know, send up a threat like that and call them on their nonsense, you know, she was... So, anyway.
0: Well, I'm really sorry but, that you had to go through that.
1: I, right. But at the end of it, like, we... He has become more healthy in a way. Like he has been exercising weekly uh you know, multiple times a week and kind has of been put him into gear yeah, a little bit. That's and good. Been, you know, more focused on, you know, we collectively, the two of us have been more focused on family instead of career instead of, you know, yeah, all of fantastic. that stuff. So it's, you know, it's 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 ultimately at the end of it been beneficial, but it was terrifying. Yeah. And um and and why still to this day why he as a you know 35 year old man with no other no comorbidities i mean he never smoked he never did drug like he was not an ill person yeah. and why he became as ill as he did and other people didn't i don't i don't know i think you know anecdotally probably has something to do with his dna
0: yeah and right? i think that that's what they were saying kind of towards the end was that you know, comorbidities played a big role, but a lot of it was based on what you had in your blood. We had talked earlier about you being a uh, pediatric ER nurse. I would love to hear, um, you know, what your what what's your favorite patient from
1: <laughs> <laughs> from the ER? Okay. Well, my f- my favorite story from the ER actually comes from the adult world, okay. but it was a young adult. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to take you back to a time in the trauma room when we didn't have physicians that stayed in the trauma room, mm-hmm. okay? So you had to page them. We had to page them to come to the trauma room, but there were two nurses. We stayed in the trauma room, and there were two techs that stayed in the trauma room consistently, right? And I was working night shift, and this is the middle of the night, early morning hours, probably like 2, 3 in the morning, something like that. The whole trauma room had been emptied out, and this young couple comes in through triage. And you know, like... Probably what that means, right? I already men, have a
0: really good idea. Young men of what's coming in through here. triage.
1: But no no no. It wasn't that I thought oh, it okay. was that. But young men coming in through triage in the middle of the night, it's almost always stuff in the butt. Usually. <laughs> Usually. Not this story though. Okay. Dang so it. this couple comes in and they come back in the, the triage nurse brings him back to the trauma room. Right. And we're like, okay, he's like otherwise well appearing. We put him down on the, the, he's like, comes in through with a wheelchair, they get him over to the bed and whatever. And I said, I said to him, I said, well, what, you know, what's, what's going on? And he goes, well, my girlfriend and I are, are visiting from out of town and we, we came into town to tell, um, her parents that she's expecting. And while we were having sex, and she came down on top of him and broke his penis. Oh, that sucks. Ninety degree angle. Oh my god. So it's a thing. Jesus Christ! <laughs> this is, it gets better. So just hold on. Oh man. Oh. So this is this is a medical emergency, right? Yes. This guy cannot pee. There's lack of blood supply. There's, I mean, this is a this is a huge. So they call the the urology team in. You know they're prepping him for surgery right yeah and he's distraught and he's like you know super embarrassed and super distraught right and so i said well well, let me let me go get your your girlfriend from the front you know like you they're prepping you for surgery let's let's
0: let's make you a little more comfortable it'll be
1: fine yeah so i bring her back and they're kind of sitting there talking and i'm over at the nurses station so they're in like the recess part so you know like a little bit away but i'm and i'm charting and they're chatting and She like starts kind of crying. She's getting all teary-eyed. And I come over and I'm like, Oh, is everything okay? Are you okay? And she's like smiling happy. And I'm like, what's going on? And she goes, Well, if you break it, you bought it. (laughs) He proposed to her in the recess room right before he went to surgery. He's sitting there with a broke dick. (laughs) (laughs) But her response was the best. You break it, you bought it. That's the best thing. Oh my god, that's so funny. That was oh. so that by far is my favorite story. That's great. <laughs> that was, yes. That's
0: fantastic. That what is... a
1: great story for them to and their
0: kids, you know, I to know. pass
1: on. Like, <laughs> oh, how would you tell that? Like not, obviously to your not to their over eighteen. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened was. Yeah. <laughs> Oh God That's
0: funny Yeah um, Can you Do you have any like embarrassing stories Like something oh, that you may have done That you uh-huh. kind regr- uh-huh. <laughs> of regret
1: doing I have a couple of them Okay <laughs> Even better um, So I was still pretty green Pretty green in the ER I'd only been there like a year Maybe a year and a half Something like that and I was working a trauma shift, and this young girl comes in, and she had gone to Mexico to get a nose job.
0: Oh.
1: Mm-hmm. Cause cheaper. She was like esanguinating. Oh, <laughs> they had, like, so nicked. she was
0: bleeding out. Yes, oh, they goodness. had like nicked
1: an artery, and she was bleeding, and they had sent her home. She had come back home, um, but she was still like bleeding, and she was like pale. She was oh, like. Goodness. She was like you know, tachycardic. She was, I mean, she was just, she was sick. Sick, sick, sick. And so we're, we have her in the, in the recess room and they're, because she had had this nose job, they can't really like pressure, they can't stop the bleeding as well, right? Sure. And they're like getting ENT or like the, the plastic surgeons to come down and see her to try to like take her back to surgery to fix this, you know, and whatever. And the attending looks at me and he's like trying all these different techniques and he goes, go get me the cocaine. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Like, I'm just going to walk out to the street and, like, <laughs> ask somebody cocaine. for cocaine. he goes, no, idiot. It's in the machine. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay. No <laughs> That's a drug we can get." <laughs> so I go, I go over and I was like, cocaine. Oh, we have cocaine. You can actually oh, pull cocaine out of the pixies. Okay. But see, I
0: didn't know that. Holy cow. But I was
1: like, I was so like, oh yeah, like I'm just going to go, what am I going to go ask one of our like people out in the lobby for some cocaine? Like, it's like he's,
0: he's an idiot. He's like, just looking at you. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I can just see him too. Like, what the fuck? Uh-huh. <laughs> Where did you pull that from?
1: <laughs> yeah, I didn't know you could pull cocaine from the Pixis oh. either. You know, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> See, I was like a total idiot. I was like, oh, oh, right. oh <laughs> that like, exists. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's funny. Do you want to hear my other one? Yes. So it also is having to do with medications. Okay, <laughs> so probably in... not cocaine because you learned it's that not, lesson. It's <laughs> not. It's not. Yeah, it's not cocaine. So we're in the trauma room and we have this guy who's in, um, like heart rate's really, really high and the doc wants me to give um, metoprolol, so a drug to bring down the heart rate, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's like, um, tells me to give five milligrams of metoprolol, right? And it's like IV push. So I'm like, okay, so I go over to the machine and I type in M-E-T, right? And I pull it out and it's it ends up being a med error,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: I pull out what I think is metoprolol, I give it, and I'm like, oh, this is great. It was in 5 milligrams, which I now know, like,
0: that's not how that works. metoprolol is actually <laughs>
1: 10 milligrams. But anyway, so I pull it out, I give it, and nothing happens. And me and the attending are, like, watching this guy, and nothing happens. He goes, well, did you give it? And I said, I mean, I did, yeah, I totally did. And he goes, well... All right, why don't you give the other five? And I was like, oh, okay. So I go walk go back over to the Pixis and he goes, wait a second. Why are you going back over there? And I said, well, I have to get out more. So he goes, let me see what you pulled out. And I show him. And it's um, metaclopramide or Reglan, Yeah. It's anti-nausea medication. At least it was anti-nausea medication. I know. Well, that's what I say. It was a med error, yeah. right? Yeah. It was a Med Air. I I owned it. I did what I needed to do. Paperwork was Uh filed. Absolutely. It's all legal. Everybody everybody who needed to know needed to know. But the attending is like, well, at least he's not nauseous. (laughs) Probably didn't help him. Probably not going to throw up anytime soon. (laughs) Can we get him the right stuff now?
0: Yeah, yeah, we can. <laughs> that's good that you were at least able, and it's good that you're able to talk about it because I think there's a lot of nurses and EMS right now that are afraid to mm. talk about their med errors because of the things that are happening. But those things are happening because people are afraid to talk about it, mm-hmm. you know. And it's I that's a tough one.
1: That's a tough one because it happens to everybody. It does at some point, and you just hope that it doesn't happen more than once. And that right? it's not detrimental the it's first time. It's not detrimental. Yeah. I mean, I was there when a certain... I worked in the ER when a certain somebody accidentally gave insulin to a bunch of employees instead of a flu shot. Mm. Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> oh. Mm-hmm. oh, oh
0: God. Gotcha. Uh-huh.
1: It was, it was an accident. It was a matter. Yeah. We used, to, we used to have multi-dose vials of the flu shot that they would give as staff. Every
0: Didn't they keep the oh, maybe this best also, after? Did they keep them in the fridge? Like yep, in the it was in the fridge, fridge and
1: so no, it was in the like med, the medication fridge, and uh, we also used to have multi dose vials of insulin. We could use as long as you clean the top, you could use it for multiple patients.
0: That's not that's not legit anymore. I, it's not legit anymore, day, but yes, it, it but was, it was yes. at
1: one time as long as you cleaned <sighs> it off. And Ugh. it was it was a med error, and luckily both uh, both people that received it are I think okay, and uh, I've seen them both since and worked with them both since. Oh, and, that's good.
0: That can be very you know, detrimental, yeah. especially not like if they hadn't realized that it was insulin, and you
1: had two people just dropping, you know? Yeah. Uh, oh. <laughs> yeah. That's scary. So I mean, so errors happen. They it do. is what it is, and I think that we all just try, and we all feel terrible when it happens. We do, like But just make sure that you own up to it. You know. You own it. Yeah. And you and you learn from your mistakes, and you, you know, do the things that you need to do, and push forward. And and most importantly, just learn. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just keep it as a learning tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And from then on, anytime I would type in metoprolol or metoclopramide, I was like. It jogged that memory. Well, good. Mm-hmm. Good. I'm glad that it was a, a learning
0: lesson and <laughs> that it didn't end up worse. Yes, but very embarrassing. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yes. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, what's been your least favorite
1: patient or least favorite case? I have two. Okay. I have two. So the first one happened in pediatrics right before I quit. And it is, to this day, probably, and by, far surpasses all of the other stuff that I ever saw. Um, she was 16, came in, it was like a standard day, right? We're just kind of rolling through the motions, you know, things were happening, and then in comes this hysteric woman with a child in her arms, screaming, screaming. She didn't speak English, and this child is just not, just does not look right. So we run her into our recess room in the PZR, and I go to grab this child from the woman, and the woman will not let this child go. She's like pulling her back, and I just, I forcefully had to grab this child from her, and I put her down on the bed, and all I can feel is bones, and she's in this yellow one-piece jumpsuit thing, and her eyeballs are in my head. I can't get her eyeballs out of my head, but her eyes were like black and glossed over, like her pupils were so dilated and glossed over. And we started resuscitation, we started CPR on her, and as as we're pumping on her chest, I'm pumping her chest, and we're cutting, other people are cutting off her clothes. That just what I saw underneath there was just like something I will never, you can see I'm getting all flushed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got goosebumps. It's, she has these wounds that I'm like, I've never seen anything like this before. And they're all over her body. And when I tell you that she was 16 years old she weighed 10 kilograms.
0: So that's 22, 22 pounds. pounds.
1: 22 pounds. 22
0: pounds. 22 pounds. pounds. As a 16-year-old, she had to have looked like
1: a skeleton. She, she had so little fat that she, if she tried, she wouldn't have even been able to close her lips. Wow. Um, and we worked her. <sighs> that was a hard work. We worked her, and we shouldn't have, because she was dead. She had been dead. Um, And that's the hardest part of pediatrics is knowing when to say enough is enough. And I literally had to grab the attending physician by the arm and pull him to the side and say what are we doing here? And why are we doing this? It is not gonna save her. She's dead. And she's been dead. So finally We convince him as a team. Him, because in the hospital, it's the physician who makes the final call, right? And nobody else can. The senior resident, the fellow, the nurses, and I, of course, was charge nurse that day. We all are like, we're done. This This is futile. And all we're doing is injuring this poor child's soul. So finally, he calls it. And then we start the process of, because in the hospital, it's the nurses who prepare the body,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Well, when it's a pediatric case, I can think of very few reasons why we wouldn't call Office of the Medical Investigator. And because this had come in as such a crazy traumatic, we don't know what's happening. You know, we had, oh, of course, we by that point had interpreters there and the, and the whole nine and asking her about these wounds. And these are, they look like burn wounds. They look like, they look like flesh peeling off. They look like acid burns. I, I couldn't even, and, and I asked, what is this on her skin? What is going on with her skin? And she, the mom, all she could say was, that's just her skin. That's just her skin any sense. I've never seen anything like this before. People don't
0: just develop burns on their skin. I've never seen
1: anything like this before. And so we're, you know, we're waiting for OMI to get there and we're, you know, waiting. We had, um, I had called the police at this point because then we have a dead child. So, um, we call the police and we're waiting for them to arrive and that kind of a thing. And my unit director had come in, um, because, you know, she had kind of come through and seen the chaos or whatnot. And so she had come in and was helping, which was, you know, un- unlike unit directors. Do. Sure. Yeah, she had come in and was helping. Um, and I was grateful for that. And she goes to pull like a sheet up or something. And she goes, what's that? And I look down. And in her genitalia, she has maggots. Crawling out of her body. Wow. So that means she has some kind of an open wound. She has some kind of, she's been dead for a while, or I don't know, you know? Or she's had that wound for a while. She's had that wound for a while. And it's been, it's gone untreated. yeah. Yeah. So OMI gets there and they spent, usually OMI does a few. Things in the hospital, they take some images, they collect some samples, that kind of thing, and then they package the body and they take it back to their laboratory to complete their investigation. They spent four hours in that room with that little girl collecting samples, taking photographs, there was so much to photograph. There was so much to document before they could even do the complete autopsy on her. And it was just, it was horrific. That's disgusting. It was, was, I can, like, (sighs) she is the one case that I hope goes to court. She is that one case where I'm like, I hope you go to court.
0: Child abuse is so Mm -hmm. high in New Mexico and I think it's easy for people to it's, I wouldn't say that it's dismissed because that makes it sound callous, but it is. Mm-hmm. It is dismissed. I mean, look at Victoria's case. Mm-hmm. Uh, Victoria was used at 10 years old and sold for drugs mm-hmm. at 10 years old and then murdered. And that kind of opened people's eyes. But working in the EMS field, I can't tell you how many abused kids I've seen in the field that didn't make it to the hospital
1: mm-hmm.
0: because it was too late. It's too late. And it is a huge problem here in New Mexico. I'm, I, I can't speak for other states. I can only speak for New Mexico. It is a huge, huge problem in New Mexico.
1: Yep, and when you are the one who's being handed a child with markings, and not even that child, I'm, I'm talking perfectly well-alive children, and they come in, And you get those, we get those calls, and it's like, another one, why? And they come in with this mark and that mark and this burn and that thing and this, you know, and you're like, and there's nobody there to love them and you're just, here I am trying to take care of this septic kid over here and this kid with cancer over here and I'm carrying around this baby who's been abused and neglected how many times in the ER did I give baths to children and clean them up because nobody just filthy looking in diaper bags because that's what we do in the ER right when you're you just you search through people's stuff because then we're like detectives putting yeah, together pieces yeah yeah and you're finding fifths of Jack Daniels in there or crack pipes in a in a diaper bag you know and you're and I
0: know I know. I can speak, you know, I can attest to the ER staff doing the things that they're supposed to be doing and contacting the people that they're supposed to be Mm -hmm. contacting CYFD, um, you know, and and PD, and where is the disconnect? And why is there such a huge
1: disconnect in this state? You know? Yeah, I, I think that from my perspective, I think that it's the CYFD workers are so overwhelmed just like we are in emergency services they're so overwhelmed there's so few of them for their huge caseloads you know and i think things just get overlooked they get they get complacent in their job you know and they're like oh well this is neglect but eh, it's not that bad because we've seen such bad stuff right? right so Eh, this one's not so bad. But in reality, that eh, not so bad one then becomes it's the really late, bad one. Or it's too late. And in the case of that patient, we, as an ER, physicians who I respect, had called CYFD on her. I believe it was something like seven times Oof. prior to that end result. This was a child who has special needs, so it already puts them in a high-risk category. This was an impoverished family. That's another tick on that chain. This was a non-English-speaking family. Again, not I don't want to be, I'm just saying from a tick on the chain, I'm not trying to pigeonhole yeah. any, anybody into anything else, right? Because what I know and what I learned from pediatrics is it doesn't matter, ultimately, who you are. How much education you have, how much, what background you have, you can abuse your child just like anybody else, you know? And that's, you know, I, I heard multiple times from people say, oh, this, this couldn't be abuse because, because this is a, this, this person's a, a an attorney, so they can't abuse it. Yeah. Oh, yes, they can. This person's a doctor. Guarantee this person's
0: you. a police officer. This person's a
1: fast food worker.
0: Sure. They, it doesn't it matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't.
1: It, matter. Doesn't. it doesn't matter. terrible. Um, and this child didn't have, you know, I think the hardest part for that child for me was that she, when I talked with the OMI worker, what the OMI worker said to me, what the, the medical examiner, the physician said to me was, the amount of pain this child endured in her life is like nothing she had ever seen. This child was eaten alive by bugs. That's what some of those markings were. They were scratch marks from where she was scratching off bugs and maybe feces that you know, and whatever else that was on her. She was deaf, I believe, and she had no vision. So here she was laying in a bed, unfed. She should have had a feeding tube but at some point it was taken out or it was pulled out and never replaced, so she just was starving to death. That poor child. And when they went, when um, the detectives went to the house and then they came back and we were still, the body was still there. And I've never once seen one of those child abuse, the, um, what are they called? What is their official title? I'm crimes sure. against children yes crimes, crimes against, against children. children detectives i've never seen any one of them cry and i saw two officers cry they wow. said that room was one of the worst they've ever seen so that that is the one that haunts me above all else and i i don't i don't think i've been the same i couldn't look at any other kid the same after that one yeah that changed your
0: perspective I, I, I see everything. why it could, yeah.
1: Yeah, changed everything for me.
0: That's terrible. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. And I'm so sorry for the whole team and the ER
1: and... I'm sorry for the girl. Uh, yeah. I'm not even sorry for me, I'm sorry for her. I'm sorry that, that that was her life. That she knew nothing other than neglect and pain and sadness. That's what I'm sorry for. Yeah.
0: And it sounds terrible, but I'm glad she's not suffering anymore. <sighs> right? You know. That's terrible. Uh, let's, no, let's, on, that, on that note. <laughs> let's knock out your last one and then okay. we'll finish
1: up. The last one is, and I'll make it really brief, but um, the other hard one was I was working in triage on the adult side and a man came in frantic. My wife, my wife, she's not acting right. I went to the grocery store. I came back. She was on the ground. I don't know what's wrong with her. He can't get her out of the car. I run out there with him. She's got all the classic facial droop, slurred speech, pronator, you know, drifting arm, you yeah, know, the, the, the whole the whole thing, yeah. right? And we are at last known normal is 40 minutes or something, right? And I'm like, ah, yes, prime time, right? We're going to get her. We're going to fix it. And she's like eh, mid-30s, right? Wow. Yeah. Young lady, like, this is great. This is great. Book her back to the recess room I'm like pumped yeah we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna fix this right we can this is prime time we're gonna fix this physician stops me in the hallway says I don't think anything is wrong with her
0: Mm.
1: I said can you just assess her can just assess her can we can we just get her head CT please can like can we just because you know in the hospital like I can't do anything if the physician doesn't sign off on it right I don't have I don't have a protocol like that, you know? My protocol is get them to the physician. You can't write the orders you can. I cannot yeah. write the orders. She's like, in the meantime, this woman kind of goes, comes lucid. And where she had been confused, she kind of like looks around. and she goes, oh my god, where am I? What's happening? She's in this wheelchair. She's like, w-, you know. And so I said, ma'am, it's OK. Like, you're at the hospital, you know, whatever. And the doctor goes, Psh, she's just drunk. She's just having a mental health situation. Like, take her back up to triage. And I said, no, I will not take her back to triage. She, I swear to you, I know what I saw. I know what I saw. I fight with them. They said, fine, put her in one of the rooms. So I put her in a room. Now, it's a busy day. Physicians don't get to her. They don't get to her. They don't get to her. I had told... Um, the nurse that was taking care of her, of all the things I had seen, and that nurse had gone in, and, of course, she wasn't doing those she same things at that it. point, yeah. right? So the nurse had kind of, you know, seen her and then kind of went about their regular stuff. Docs go through a shift change. And so the new set of physicians come on, and they're going to make their rounds. Now, mind you, this is about, like, three hours later, okay? And the attending goes in and goes, uh, She's now having the facial droop. She's having the, you know, the same symptoms she had before, right? The slurred speech, the altered mental status, the whole nine. So they ship her back to the recess room. Now we're at like four hours into this whole thing, and they they give her medicine. Um,
0: before and having I think, done the test or the no, scan? they they did the CT okay. scans and
1: all that stuff, and then they give her the the TPA and all the things, and she did make somewhat of a recovery. I think the last I heard that she still has deficits but like I think that was really challenging for me because I'm like I did everything right and I still couldn't make a better outcome for this person I couldn't fix it because somebody else didn't the person who was above me didn't see what I saw and I could nothing I said no matter who I talked to, the other physicians I got, the other, the charge nurse I got, you know, and the charge nurse was equally as upset as me, right? Like, she went to bat as well. um, And she and I were both distraught over the whole thing and, you know, upset. But I'm like, that to me is the hard, hard part of what I do is I can know everything. And I, you know, I can study things, I can know, I can, I can see signs. And if somebody else doesn't believe it, right? You're in the same boat. Yep. If somebody else doesn't agree or doesn't see it, you're like, the sky is blue. No, nah, it's purple. No, no, I swear to you, the sky is blue. Look, look, you can see it. It's it's blue. It's right there. It's yeah. blue. No, nope, I see purple.
0: Yeah, it's it's really funny that you talk about that, because it is that is something that I've dealt with and have talked about quite a bit here, too, is when we take a patient in and we're seeing certain symptoms, and the doctors and the nurses just dismiss us. Um, One case in particular that I remember quite fondly. um, We picked up a young lady who they called for a seizure, and when we got there, it was obvious, yes, that she had had a seizure, but it was also obvious that the boyfriend had beat the shit out of her. And you know, we get there, and the fire department had uh, taken vitals and did their assessment. So when we got her into the ambulance, I did another assessment. Well, she had bleeding out of her ear. Mm-hmm. And she was able to tell us who she was, where she was. Um, I asked her which hospital she wanted to go to. She told me the closest hospital. And I told her, you know what? I think that given your symptoms, we should take you to the trauma facility. So she reluctantly agreed. And we took her to the trauma facility. and. Um, walked in and trauma was not very busy that day uh but the the rest of the beds had been full so we walk in and you know i i made the request to go through trauma i walk in the attending told the uh the baby doctor to do a quick assessment Mm -hmm. and walks over "Ah, everything looks okay everything looks okay so the doctor says go back to a room Mm -hmm. so we go and we wait we're sitting there for about five minutes and the the, uh, uh, bed manager comes over and says, look, we don't have any rooms. Um, take, take her to triage. And I said, that's fine. Like I'll take her to triage and I'll talk with the doctor in triage and I'll get her a scan right away. I have some pool that way where, I, you know, like you were saying, you, su- you suggest it. And so we get up to triage and we're trying to get her moved over. And I say her name and she's, she's recognizing that I'm calling her name and I'm standing to the left of her on the stretcher, and she's turning to the right, and she's trying to find me hmm. because she can hear that I'm talking to her, but she cannot distinguish where I'm standing at. And I was like, oh, that's not good. So I get in front of her, and I say, grab my hand and squeeze my fingers. Like, I have chills just talking mm-hmm. about it. Grab my hand, squeeze my fingers. She throws her right hand up, and she's trying Mm -hmm. to grab my hand but Mm -hmm. she's not recognizing it Mm -hmm. she's i was like nope partner we're going back up to trauma Mm -hmm. throw her last seat belts back on rush her up to trauma the doctor is pissed Mm -hmm. he is pissed that we've walked in and he's like i told you guys to Mm -hmm. go to a bed just because there's no beds available does not mean that she needs to be in trauma i said look we've had a mentation change I'm not arguing with her, or I'm not arguing with you, I'm putting her in this bed. Fight me on it. I am putting her in this Mm -hmm. bed. And the nurse at the time was like, doc, she said that she's had a mentation change. Let's assess her. Something's wrong. The paramedic's not lying. Let's get this done. We put her into the bed. As soon as we shift her over to the bed, she starts seizing. She has a massive brain bleed with a shift. Had to have surgery to relieve the pressure. Mm -hmm. Um, The last I checked on her, she survived. I don't know to what mental capacity she had survived with, but that one was rough. And the doctor and the nurse both apologized profusely. It's nice that you got an apology. It was nice. <laughs> it was very take, nice.
1: Take that. Yeah, yeah. Take that and run with it. Cause... And
0: I got a, uh, an attaboy out of it. Like, it was a huge... It was the, the My medical director from uh, my service at the time pulled me in and was like, good fucking job. Hell yeah. This is the kind of people, you know, we want this yeah. recognized. We want this taken care of. And we want people who are not afraid to fight. Yeah. Um, and advocate for their patients. So that was... Uh, that was an interesting day at at the very least, but, um, we're getting ready to finish up here. I just want to give you the opportunity to talk about, um, any, uh, services that you may have come across or anybody that you want to talk about. You had mentioned that your husband has a business.
1: If you want to promote his business, we can do that as well. Yeah. He, he owns a a diesel performance shop. It's called heavy hitters performance uh, here in Albuquerque and they, um, they do excellent, excellent they they specialize in diesel performance kind of work um diesel trucks but uh he'll do he'll work on anything so okay <laughs> you
0: know cool. no that's great <laughs> uh,
1: he's fabulous mechanics so. awesome yeah.
0: so shoot me the information and i'll throw it up on my website for yeah. sure will do
1: all right robin awesome. thank
0: you so much for coming out it's been thank a great you. conversation yeah. the the stories today have been great um it's it's been amazing thank you so much <laughs> thank you for having me yeah no problem Thank you for listening before we wrap up we have a few important announcements to share with you firstly we're excited to announce the launch of our brand new 911 nonsense facebook group page it's a community where everyone can go to connect share ideas discuss topics from the show and get all of the most recent updates about the podcast we'd love to have you join us and be part of the conversation next we want to ask you to rate and review our podcast on your preferred platform your feedback means the world to us and helps us reach a wider audience by rating and reviewing the show, you'll be supporting us in a big way and helping others discover 911 nonsense. If you enjoy what we do and would like to support the podcast even further, we have a few options available. You can visit samspursuit.com to find the links to our 911 nonsense merch page and our recently released Noon Gear page. Every contribution, no matter the size, goes a long way in helping us continue to better the podcast. We know that not everyone is comfortable being on the podcast, but we still want to hear your stories and experiences. If you have a compelling story and would like to share it to be read by me in a future episode, please reach out to us via email at 911nonsense at gmail.com or through our website's contact section. If you choose to be anonymous, we'll make sure to respect your privacy while sharing your story in a way that resonates with our audience. Thank you again for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more engaging content in the future. See you next week.